Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. Welcome back, everybody all around the world. Welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you here, and it is great to be back. I always uh, enjoy recording these uh, episodes. Uh, doing the research is sometimes uh, laborious, but the uh, the recording of the episodes I surely enjoy. Uh, the, honestly, the research I enjoy, too, is just sometimes it gets a little tedious uh, going through all the various documents and stuff that I've got to go through. Some of them are more exciting than others. When I do find those hidden gems, though, that are uh, really amazing, I, it's it's like striking gold, and I really enjoy that. And I'm happy to be able to bring that uh, that research to you folks, and I'm glad that you're here to study this information with me. Very glad that you're here. And again, as I always say, the Founding Fathers would probably be glad that you're here as well, and that you're not um, uh, ignoring what they uh, what they wrote and what, what they were talking about during this particular period of time. And I hope you enjoyed the Thursday episode this last week. It was uh, very much a shorter episode. And just an update as to the podcast, the reason for that is I, I do routinely get really close to falling behind or, in fact, fall behind on my research, which causes a problem. Because it takes a it takes a long time to, to do that research and to look through all this material, and I've had to pretty much eliminate every other project that I work on just to be able to manage two episodes a week on this particular podcast here. And then, of course, I have uh, my Patreon podcast, more on that later, but there is the possibility that the this this podcast here will be going to that kind of format where we do basically a standard feature length episode for Monday and then we do a shorter episode for Thursday and poss- possibly occasionally doing a feature length episode on Thursday as well it might alternate back and forth depending on how far ahead or behind I am on my research so I certainly hope that you bear with me I'll try to make those Thursday podcasts if they have to be shorter I'll, I'll try to make those episodes as informative as I possibly can. I'll, I'll either pull some very short segments of what the Founding Fathers wrote and bring that in and talk about it, or I'll go back and revisit something that I didn't quite cover completely, uh, or at least to my satisfaction before, and we may revisit it and expand on it somewhat, or we may bring in a minor topic uh, of discussion, something to just uh, something that I just find particularly fascinating, and hopefully you do as well. But uh, yeah, it does take a lot of time, so that's why we that's why we'll end up probably with some of those shorter episodes on Thursdays. So I, I certainly appreciate your patience with me on that. I really, really do. And as always, I appreciate your listenership. It's an honor for me to have you here, uh, listening to this material with me and studying it with me. So that's the uh, that's the update on the podcast here. Of course, I do broadcast as well over on Patreon.com/slash/podcasts with Roman. Uh, the link is in the description box to this podcast. Most places you would download this podcast uh, and, and the various episodes contained herein. I did uh, I did make an episode of that podcast, the Patreon podcast, that is free. Uh, so you can go over there and listen to that. Usually it's a subscription service, of course. That's that's uh, basically a revenue-generating podcast, whereas this one is is not. This one generates zero revenue. It actually costs me quite a bit more money than it, ever, than it would ever bring in, because it brings in zero, and it does cost money to do this podcast. The other podcast is quite a bit different that way. And the subscription over there on the Patreon side gets you access to that content there. And the the episode that I made for free over there is actually, I think, a really good discussion if you're interested in the topic. If you're not interested in the topic, then you might not find it particularly interesting. But it gives you 
an insight into the breadth of discussion that that's available over there. It basically takes my my perspective, my philosophy, and my my viewpoint and applies it to a broader range of topics than what we talk about here. This is exclusively Founding Fathers content here on this this podcast, whereas the other one on Patreon is anything and everything. And I recently uh, cranked out another episode as well on December 7th, 1941 for the 80th anniversary in remembrance of what transpired during World War II. And if you're interested at all in understanding a little bit more of that or perhaps hearing a different perspective, I recommend it. I, I highly recommend listening to that one because you're going to hear things, I think, on that on that episode that you're, you're not going to hear anywhere else. I, uh, I, I fairly well unload on that on that episode you you'll hear it you'll hear the uh the frustration the uh the passion and the and the general emotional emotions and feelings that I have about that particular topic it was it was a heck of a thing it really was and if you're um if you don't know much about World War II in the Pacific or again if you want to hear a different perspective it, it's over there it's not the uh, it's not the episode that's available free that's a different episode because I wanted to do something other than just history content as far as an introduction or a preview of that podcast but you can go over there and give that a listen see if you like it if you don't that's fine I don't get offended either way so this episode here we are going to talk about the road trip with John Adams in 1770 He's going to be traveling from Boston to Philadelphia, and he writes letters along the way. We won't be covering, obviously, the entire trip, because some of the letters that he wrote just, just weren't interesting. I, I kind of have to take letters that I find interesting and bring those onto the podcast. Some of the earlier letters he wrote from his early, from his journey first out of Massachusetts was not particularly fascinating. So I... I and it didn't really it didn't really show the road trip aspect of what he was writing about. So we're just going to skip over those and we're going to start off with him in Connecticut and then we're going to go from there. And I think you're going to enjoy this listening to what it was like to go on a road trip with John Adams. This this episode's going to be some fun, I think. And uh, I hope you enjoy. We're going to have a great conversation today. So with that said, let's get into this episode of the podcast right now. All right, now let's get into this. This is one of those episodes I actually look forward to for quite a while. Um, happy to be doing this one. This is going to be some good stuff. Uh, so we're going to start off with a letter from August 16, 1774. And at this point, John Adams is in the midst of his road trip. He's already on, well on his way. And we will find that out uh, a little ways down the letter, but we're going to start off with a little bit of discussion about non-importation, non-consumption, a.k.a. boycott, and give you an update on that. Quote, this morning, Dr. Elliot Rawson, Mr. Alsop, Mr. Mortimer, and others of the Committee of Correspondence, Mr. Henshaw, and many other gentlemen came to pay their respects to us, and to assure us that they thought we had their all in our hands, and that they would abide by whatever should be determined on, even to a total stoppage of trade to Europe and the West Indies, end quote. So these gentlemen are telling the folks from Massachusetts who are on their way to Philadelphia to the Congress— that if you enact some kind of a non-importation, non-consumption, we totally support you. Totally support you. Which says that they are, they are committed to the cause. They're committed to the cause of getting their rights back. And that this is a testament to sacrifice. These people's willingness to sacrifice their comfort in many cases. They're willing to give up those goods from Europe and the West Indies in order to live a more free people. How, how many people would be willing to do that today? In any part of the world. I mean, in some parts of the world, more or less so than others. But there are there are people out there, there always have been, including in the colonies at this particular time, people who would regard freedom as a little bit less than they would their comfort. In other words, they, ho they hold comfort in a little bit higher regard than their freedom, which is sad. 
But as far as the people of this generation, you know, don't ever forget what these people, these folks gave up uh, in order to gain the kind of freedom that many in the history of the world could only dream of. However incomplete it was at the time, or at least incomplete in regards to certain certain folks, this was the start of a great opportunity for a great many people. Let's continue on and see where we're at on this road trip. Quote, At four we made for New Haven. Seven miles out of town at a tavern we met a great number of carriages and of horsemen who had come out to meet us. The sheriff of the county and the constable of the town and the justices of peace were in the train as we were coming. We met others to the amount of I know not what number, but a very great one. As we came into the town, all the bells in the town were set to ringing, and the people, men, women, and children, were crowding at the doors and windows as if it was to see a coronation. At nine o'clock, the cannon were fired, about a dozen guns, I think. End quote. Sounds like a hero's welcome. And they haven't even done anything yet. That just shows you the excitement of the people out there for what was going to, uh, what was going to happen in the Congress, or what they hoped would happen. You know, and I really wonder what it would have been like to be there. Do, do any of you wish you could have seen this, that, that, that particular site? Uh, John Adams and Samuel Adams and the, and, the, and the boys from Massachusetts rolling into town in Connecticut, in New Haven in this case. And all of the people out there to welcome them at the very, very beginning of this thing. We're very, because we're very close to the Revolutionary War at this particular point. We really are. We're right on top of it. And this was really going to be the beginning of all of that work that was set in motion to build a country. And that country would go on to do some pretty spectacular things. And just like I talk about in my most recent Patreon podcast on December 7th, 1941, it would eventually go on to the United States by way of its great veterans who served in the war, go on to uh, free a great many people across the world, or at least give them the opportunity of freedom, some of which was uh, squandered. So now at this point, you know, as far as New Haven, Connecticut, if you're curious how far that is outside of Boston, I uh, I clocked it at about 130 miles outside of Boston, and it's uh, about 170 miles from Philadelphia. So we're about at the midpoint of his trip from Boston to Philadelphia. And what a great welcome from the people there. Uh, and I, he says, as far as the numbers of people out there, he says, quote, a very great one, end quote. That is to say, a very great number of people were out uh, to support him. As I've said many times, it's a good thing the Founding Fathers didn't have Netflix, otherwise there probably wouldn't have been as many people out there to support them as, as there were in New Haven at this particular time. But because, you know, they didn't have anything like that back then, this was the biggest game in town. Uh, the, the, the delegates to the Congress basically walk, going through town it was a big deal. It's a very big deal. And here's an interesting thing to note from this. Quote, at nine o'clock, the cannons were fired. About a dozen guns, I think. End quote. So what's the town of New Haven, Connecticut doing with cannons? That's artillery. I mean, we're not talking about muskets here. We're talking about actual artillery fire. A town of New Haven had artillery. I want you to think about that for a second. I wonder what people would think of New Haven, Connecticut today if they acquired a howitzer for defense of the town and country. Think about that. Like, uh, in military circles, I looked it up, you know, an M198 150mm howitzer is kind of a standard-issue military artillery piece today. Imagine if the town of New Haven, Connecticut had one of those, or a couple of them. I mean, he says, John Adams says a dozen guns, I think, that's what he said. What if, what if New Haven had a dozen of those things? Would that shock anybody? What if the town of New Haven, Connecticut decided it wanted to acquire that? Well, we want, we want to purchase a dozen guns. M198 150mm howitzers. What would the people think about that? I mean, the, the biggest question would be, why? Question mark. Why would you want to do that? 
but it, it would be a modern version of the standard issue canon back in 1774. And I think people have forgotten how common it was for the local towns and counties to have weapons like that for the common defense. It's, a, it's yet another appearance of the, quote, well-regulated militia, end quote. I'm just putting it out there. And I'm not saying that the town of New Haven, Connecticut should go out and acquire an M198 howitzer. I'm not saying that. But honestly, if it were for the defense of the town, if there was some, if there was some particular threat that required, you know, acquisition of something like that for defense of the town, like, you know, I mean, if the United, if the, if the border of the United States was at threat, I mean, which it has been in relatively recent times, by the way. I mean, the Soviet Union used to be like right across the Bering Strait from Alaska, for example. Would I be opposed to an Alaskan village, town, or city acquiring some M198 howitzers for its defense in the event that the Soviets come across? I wouldn't be opposed to that. I don't. I don't care if they could string together a logical argument for it and they uh, they had a plan for it. All the rest of it, I think a town should be able to acquire that kind of material. Be honest with you, if they if they decide to. Oh, but Roman, Roman, for crying out loud! That's what a standing army is for. That's why we have the standing army. Well, you know, well, you know, you know how we all feel about the standing army, uh, or, or the, how the founding fathers felt about the standing army. They didn't like it. Just gonna put it out there. I know we all we all appreciate the military today, and we appreciate the veterans, including me. I grew up. I spent some of my my childhood years growing up on army bases. Uh, my parents were in the army, both of them, and I got no problem with the military, generally speaking. But the founding fathers did did were very distrustful of the standing army, and because of that, so am I. Despite my time on military bases. And why am I distrustful of a standing army? Simply because the founding fathers were. Uh, uh, it's important to take the wisdom of people who are more intelligent than you and who had wisdom acquired through many years of learning. Uh, I, I take their wisdom and I make it my own. And the founding fathers proved to be very wise people because if they if they weren't very wise people, they, they wouldn't have been able to build a country. So I, just take that for what it is. And a lot of people out there are going to disagree with me on that about the standing army and all the rest of it. But like I said, we haven't even begun to, to scratch the surface of that with the founding fathers. I've got other papers that I'm going to that I'm going to talk about with you folks. That's going to show you why, in some respects, the founding fathers did not appreciate a standing army very much. And it wasn't because they didn't like the soldiers or they didn't like the generals like General Washington. General Washington was one of them for crying out loud. And he was from Virginia, a, a state, a colony, at one point that was very distrustful of a standing military. I'm going to read you a document from Virginia that's going to show you that. Oh, yeah. We're going to, this is, because this is the real, this is the real history podcast right here about the Founding Fathers. This isn't the, uh, the warm and fuzzy feel good, you know, to, uh, to, to basically be gentle with, with everybody's delicate sensibilities. It's it's real. This is reality. This is the real world. Again, it's not it's not Disney World Fantasyland. And the re why do I talk about this so much? And why do I point this out about a dozen canons or whatever? Because it's important for people to understand the difference in the colonies versus the United States today. Some people really can't comprehend it. They really can't. They can't reconcile the two. They have they they have no concept what life was like back then. And that the town of New Haven, Connecticut would have a dozen cannons out there to welcome John Adams and Samuel Adams and the boys from Massachusetts. I mean, imagine a delegation coming through your town and the town dispatching, not even cannon, but riflemen, riflemen out there to, to, to fire off some rounds to welcome them into town. Can you imagine that today? It would never, it would probably never happen. Why? I, honestly, I, I don't know, except that, you know, people's sensibilities have changed. People are a little bit more delicate today. They're just a little bit more delicate. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to comment too much on that, but 
you know, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. The United States is a very comfortable country. It's a very comfortable nation. And I think that it has consequences. Comfort has consequences. And, you know, the people back then, back in the colonies during this particular time, they weren't very comfortable. They had frontier wars. They had just fought the French and Indian War not too long before that. George Washington was involved in that as an officer. Um, these people fought wars and they were just getting they're They're now getting ready to fight a war in their backyard, literally. Front yard and their backyard. So I, I, I dwell on this a little bit, and I beat it to death, and some people might think, Roman, Roman, you spend too much time on this. Move on. Move along. It's important for people to know there's a big doggone difference between life in this country today and life in the colonies. Because And here's why this matters, because people today are going to try to judge the Founding Fathers on what they did and who they were based on what they see in the country today and what they see in the world today. And frankly speaking, that's like apples to oranges, people. Apples to oranges. Get it straight. I mean, guess what? 1774 New Haven, Connecticut was not is not 2021 New Haven, Connecticut. It's not the same thing. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Well, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll leave that for you folks to decide. Let's continue on with this letter, though. This some, we're going to talk about some more good stuff here. Quote, These expressions of respect to us are intended as a demonstration of the sympathy of this people with the Massachusetts Bay and its capital, and to shew their expectations from the Congress and their determination to carry into execution whatever shall be agreed on. No governor of a province nor general of an army was ever treated with so much ceremony and assiduity as we have been throughout the whole colony of Connecticut, hitherto, but especially all the way from Hartford to New Haven inclusively. Nothing shews to me the spirit of the town of New Haven in a stronger point of light than the politeness of Mr. Ingersoll, Judge of Admiralty, for the Pennsylvania Middle District, who came over with his neighbors this evening and made his compliments very respectful to Tom Cushing, Sam Adams, John Adams, and Bob Payne. The numbers of gentlemen who have waited on us from Hartford to this place, the heat of the weather and the shortness of the time have made it impossible for me to learn their names, end quote. John Adams is just blown blown away by the, by the respect the hospitality, and the big welcome of the people of New Haven, Connecticut. This is, a, you know, people in New Haven, Connecticut today, listening to this uh, podcast, take pride in that, you know? I mean, take, uh, take some pride in the fact that you were there, your people were there, the people who came before you were there to support John, John Adams, Samuel Adams, and the delegation from Massachusetts. And you really bolstered their spirits going into that Congress in Philadelphia. That's a beautiful thing. They needed that energy. They took that energy from New Haven, Connecticut, and Hartford and the other places that they went to that really showed them huge amounts of support. They took that energy into the Congress with them, and they did the good work for the people of New Haven, Hartford, and Boston because of it. That's a wonderful thing, and I'm very happy uh, of the people of 1774 New Haven, Connecticut, who showed great support to, to the likes of John Adams and Samuel Adams. That's a, that's a proud history of Connecticut. And I hope that Connecticut remembers that today. I really do. Sometimes I think these things get forgotten very quickly. I wonder sometimes if Connecticut remembers this time. I really do. And of course, if there's any listeners from Connecticut, uh, listeners to this podcast, you know, that's partly why this podcast exists, to remind remind folks of what times were like back then and how, how wonderful some of these folks really were. And he mentions his, uh, his cousin Sam Adams was there, of course, because he was a fellow delegate from Massachusetts. And my gosh, imagine imagine being in that crowd. Imagine being traveling with those guys, Sam Adams, John Adams, and the rest of them on the way to Philadelphia. I mean, just to be a fly on the wall uh, and just listen to the conversations about freedom and liberty and the Constitution. That is to say what they believe to be their British Constitution, their constitutional rights, their ancient rights. 
Can you imagine being a witness to those conversations? That would be spectacular. Now, but we're going to get close to that with this podcast. That's why that's why we read from the letters. You know, these letters back and forth from John to Sam and from Washington to this person and that person. It's it's like it's like being there sometimes. It's fantastic, isn't it? Let's continue. We're going to go to a diary entry from John Adams from August the 18th of 1774. Quote, we had a good deal of chat last evening with Mr. Bears, our landlord. By his account, the parade which was made to introduce us into town was a sudden proposal in order to divert the populace from erecting a liberty pole, end quote. That's interesting. It was meant to divert the people from erecting a liberty pole? Number one, why would you want to, ere- why would you want to deter somebody from doing that? And what is a liberty pole? Well, if you don't know what a liberty pole is, I actually had to look it up once upon a time a while back. And a liberty pole was, was apparent. it goes back a long ways, apparently. It might even go back as far as the Roman Republic. But it goes back to, you know, it, it's literally a pole that you, that uh, it's like a standard. You, you lift it up and atop the pole is some kind of symbol of liberty. In some cases, it was a hat. I'm not kidding. And in some cases, it was a flag. So when we think of a flagpole today, it's not that dissimilar from a liberty pole. So when you see a flagpole with the American flag flying off of it, or flying on it, rather. We don't want it to fly off. Uh, when you see that, uh, when you see that flag flying on the pole, it, it's in essence a liberty pole because what, what, what's the American flag supposed to stand for? A republic. That's even in the Pledge of Allegiance, by the way. One more example. If you want another example why you should stop calling this country a democracy, it just remember the Pledge of Allegiance. It talks about a republic, not a democracy, and there's a reason for that. But anyway, you have the symbol of the republic, freedom, liberty, declaration of independence, flying atop a pole. That's a liberty pole. In essence, it is. And even back then, in some cases, the liberty poles, were, they flew a flag off of them. So there you go. That's a little, uh, little knowledge from 1774 and history. Let's continue. Quote, About 10, we passed the Housatonic River at Stratford, a river which runs up 150 miles and more. Though it is not navigable above 10 miles, we stopped at Curtis's. The people here all say Boston is suffering persecution, that now is the time for all the rest to be generous, and that Boston people must be supported, end quote. So these people are very much in agreement with the people of Massachusetts and what they're going through, and that it is a persecution. The, the, the Intolerable Acts, remember the Intolerable Acts? We have those two episodes, the Intolerable Acts, we talk about that. And if you, uh, if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, go back and listen to those. They're very informative. So he's traveling from New Haven to Norwalk in this particular section of the letter. We hear that. And the Housatonic River that he talks about here is about halfway, roughly, in between New Haven and Norwalk. And if you actually look at where they probably would have been traveling based on what he's writing about, he's roughly following the same path as modern-day Interstate 95. Isn't that interesting? And he, he actually—I I really debate somewhat exactly the path. I don't know, but I-95 goes into Philadelphia, and I wonder how closely he actually follows this path from uh, across Connecticut and into Philadelphia via what would today be Interstate 95. Right? It's a, it, at least part of the way he's following a very similar path, which isn't uncommon, actually. A lot of times, there, there there's a number of cases, actually, where interstates were built atop roadways that actually go back to near the founding of the country, or before. And I-95 actually ends up, we're going to learn this a little bit later, but I-95 actually ends up almost going right next to where John Adams and the Congress are, are sitting to meet. Very interesting. So that, that's why I get this idea that he followed roughly the path of I-95, and at least in some instances. Think about that. So if you're if you're if you're up in the Northeast and you're driving I-95 across Connecticut, so on and so forth, or even down into 
you know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, be, be thinking about that. Like, man, I'm, I'm traveling the roughly the same route that John Adams traveled, at least in certain parts, at the very least. So in that respect, you can you could travel the, the route of the road trip that John Adams took. Isn't that nice? Let us continue on. Uh, this next letter is going to come from, uh, it's a letter written from John Adams to a William Tudor. In August of 17, August 28th of 1774, and this was written from Princetown, New Jersey. This is where Adams was at the, when this letter was written. Quote, I am determined to write no politics, because letters may miscarry. It is sufficient to say that our accounts from every quarter of the disposition of the people is very favorable. New York and Philadelphia, cities which contain the greatest numbers of artful and lukewarm people, are put wholly out of countenance by the spirited patriotism of all, other, of all the other colonies. End quote. Hmm. So he apparently in New York and perhaps even in Philadelphia, he's hearing not exactly the warmest welcome. He refers to it as, quote, lukewarm, end quote. Well, that's that's unfortunate. I don't know what that's all about. You know, the people of New York were, were a curious bunch but back during this time. You know, New York was occupied by the British military during a good portion of the, the war. And I, I wonder sometimes if New Yorkers even opposed to that if they were actually in favor of it. The New Yorkers were not exactly no known for being the most patriotic bunch of folks in the colonies at the time. And I think to myself, you know, I wonder, has that really changed much over the last 250 years? Do you think New Yorkers, New York in general, is is very much more in favor of liberty today than they were 250 years ago? I, I really do. I, I really do think a lot about this, you know, and it's really an East Coast phenomenon because the rest of the country wasn't settled. The place where I live, for example, was not settled at all at this particular point in time. So I think sometimes about these East Coast cities like Boston and New York, and what were they like in 1774? And what are, what are they like today? And has it changed or has it not changed? In the case of New York, eh. I'll leave it up to you to decide. I, th I think it depends on who you ask in New York. I think there's going to be people in New York today that are very much fans of a, a John Adams or a Sam Adams. And I think there's a number of people who are not. even, Or at least, you know, they're not they're not thrilled about their sentiments one way or the other, even if they don't know the names. And I, I would venture to guess to say most people in New York have absolutely no clue who John or Samuel Adams even are. And I don't think I'm offending anybody in New York by saying that. I think most people in New York would probably nod their head and go, yep, yep, Roman, you're exactly right about that. <laughs> Which, which, again, is the reason why this podcast exists. Share it with your friends. Share it with your neighbors. Share it with your kids, family, whatever. We're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to help people remember what, what's going on back in 1774 because it's important. How can, you, how can you, you know, navigate the seas of today without knowing about where you come from? And I, I wonder if the, the, the lukewarm nature of the people of New York and Philadelphia was because they were big cities at the time. They're big cities today. They were also big cities at the time, by comparison to like a New Haven, Connecticut, for example. I think a New Haven or a Hartford, Connecticut at the time, smaller in scope and scale than a Philadelphia or a New York, certainly. Does that have something to do with it? And do we still see that phenomenon today, where there's a noticeable difference between big city and smaller towns? We do clearly see a distinction between the two. The people who the people in the smaller towns have different sensibilities than the people in the big cities. Why is that? What is it about big cities that changes people? And how does it change them? And why did it cause these people to be, quote, lukewarm, end quote, to the, uh, the welcome of John Adams and Samuel Adams from Boston? What is it about those big cities? What is it? There's something about that that causes people to change. And, we, you, you know, everybody can debate and argue which one is better or worse. 
and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna delve too much into that debate. That's probably you know, and you can even you know get into a partisan politics debate about that kind of thing. But there is a difference, and it's a societal phenomenon. It is a recognizable societal phenomenon, and because it's so recognizable, it's important to think about it. I'll I'll just leave it at that. So let's go into another letter from John Adams to Abigail Adams. He's writing to his wife from the road, from his road trip. John Adams to Abigail Adams on August the 28th of 1774, writing again from Princetown, New Jersey. Quote, The particulars of our journey I must reserve to be communicated after my return. It would take a volume to describe the whole. It has been upon the whole an agreeable jaunt. We have had opportunities to see the world and to form acquaintances with the most eminent famous men in several colonies we have passed through. We have been treated with unbound civility, complacence, and respect. We yesterday visited Nassau Hall College and were politely treated by the scholars, tutors, professors, and president, whom we are this day to hear preach. Tomorrow we reach the theater of action. God Almighty grant us wisdom and virtue sufficient for the high trust that is devolved upon us. The spirit of the people, wherever we have been, seems to be very favorable. They universally consider our cause as their own and express the firmest resolution to abide the determination of the Congress. End quote. So he seems happy with the reception overall, as he's uh, now more close to his destination. And there's this line here, quote, God Almighty grant us wisdom and virtue sufficient for the high trust that is devolved upon us, end quote. It's another one of those lines that you could easily pass over without thinking much about it, because it's just kind of there, you know. He's basically hoping that he has wisdom and virtue sufficient for the, quote, high trust, end quote, that he, is entrust, that, that he has to carry with him. But think about that for a second. It says to me that John Adams takes this very seriously. There's a great weight on his shoulders, as we talked about in prior episodes. There's a great weight on his shoulders, and he wants to do the best, and he's asking for wisdom and virtue. Now, how many people in elected politics today in the United States, in Europe, in Asia, and elsewhere, to themselves ask God, or whatever, for wisdom and virtue sufficient for the high trust that, th that they carry with them? Honestly? I don't think very, I think some do, but I don't think very many people care who are in politics. And that's a sad commentary. Now, why am I talking about this? Roman, why on earth are you talking about this wisdom and virtue in politics? Why don't you just continue reading the letter and, and move past this? What, what's so important about this particular section of the letter? Okay. Well, I mean, I just did an episode. The last episode was, episode 17, was about virtue and corruption. And here we go again with John Adams, again, mentioning virtue and also wisdom. Can you tell that this was on his mind a lot? And the quote that I gave you last time was roughly from, I think, 1787, 1786, roughly. I'm a little bit hard-pressed to figure out exactly when he wrote that down, but I think it was published roughly 1787, 1788. And this quote is from 1774. It's more than a 10-year gap there where John Adams is thinking about the exact same kind of thing. Okay. And both of them in application to good governance. And cast a glance to your elected legislature, your parliament, or whatever. In the United States, we have the Congress. There's 535 of those, those folks up there. And I use the word folks fairly liberally in this particular context. But there's 535 of those folks up there. Plus, you know, the delegates from the territories and whatever. And honestly, most, most days I wonder what they're even doing there. But um, anyway, how many of them do you think are, are daily asking for wisdom and virtue, sufficient for the high trust that they carry with them. Honestly, I think most of them are more concerned about how they're going to, how, how many how many checks they're going to cash this week, and where they're going to spend their 
tens of millions of dollars that they have, whether it's going to be on a $25 million mansion or whether it's going to be on a third or fourth house because many of them do have multiple houses. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but I'm saying that if you're going to be in public service and you're going to be in Congress, I don't know why we tolerate people making tens of millions of dollars in that particular line of work. It's a curious phenomenon. And it's it's not it's not unique to the United States of America. It, it, it's worldwide. This is a phenomenon, and we've we've somehow gotten away from this concept of wisdom and virtue, and we've we've just kind of accepted that it's all about the money. And I'm, the reason why I mention this is because John Adams is telling you something here. Don't ignore it. And again, anybody else except for this podcast would just skip right over this section and keep on reading. And wouldn't dwell on it because they wouldn't think there's anything to learn here. Because, the, frankly speaking, you know, most people who do these history podcasts, not not everybody, but most people, and not I shouldn't say podcasts. Honestly, the podcasting community is probably better at this than the, the larger history community. But I can tell you right now, having listened to a great many history professors in my time talk about this kind of thing, I can tell you that they think there's nothing to learn here. They literally would look at that line and say, "There's nothing to learn here," and that that's sad. Because there is something to learn here. John Adams is teaching you something, and it's important to focus on that. This is the kind of thing you should look for in somebody going to Congress, whether it's 1774 Congress in the colonies, or whether it's 2021 Congress of the United States, or Parliament in another country. Could be the Parliament of Britain, could be the Parliament here, there, wherever. Look for wisdom and virtue. But, I mean, first, before you look for that, you probably ought to know what that means. I know what it means in the context of John Adams. So when John Adams says wisdom and virtue, I know what he means. And that's the model that I look for. Now, you can choose whatever model you want. This is this is an independent decision that every human being gets to make. Me, personally, I use the John Adams model because it seems to work, as evidenced by history, 1774, 1775, 76, etc. Let's continue in this. Quote, I am anxious for our perplexed, distressed province. Hope they will be directed into the right path. Let me entreat you, my dear, to make yourself as easy and quiet as possible. Resignation to the will of heaven is our only resource in such dangerous times. Prudence, caution should be our guide. I have the strongest hopes that we shall yet to see a clearer sky and better times. End quote. Those are some good thoughts from Mr. Adams. And again, his, his religion comes through here. Quote, Resignation to the will of heaven is our only resource in such dangerous times, end quote. I think that's changed quite a bit in the United States and elsewhere, for that matter. Most people in, in, in times of, in dangerous times, like, like John Adams describes, there's two things that people most commonly reach for in dangerous times like this, as far as governance goes. Number one is money, and number two is tyranny. What? Roman? Did you just, did you just say people want tyranny in dangerous times? That's exactly what I just said. Hi, Roman! How on earth, how on earth do you have the unmitigated gall to say that people want tyranny in dangerous times? Oh, gee, I don't know. Because I've actually been paying attention the last 30 years. I've read some history books in my time. i got a whole bookshelf full of these things. I mean, I don't idle away the hours twiddling my thumbs most days. I mean, I do some trivial things, don't get me wrong. I've got some trifles that I do. Trifles meaning, you know, some frivolous you know, things that, that really are a waste of time, but everybody does. I, I always mention, I give Netflix a hard time on this podcast, but uh, we, all, we all got something. Let's, let me just put it out there. None of, us, none of us study as much as we should. But having paid attention for the last 30 years, and, have, and I'm older than 30, by the way, because uh, it's really hard to pay attention when you're one, two, three, four, five years old. I wasn't paying attention then. Anyway, but for the past 30 years, I have been. And 
you know, when I read my books, my history books especially, and I look at what's been going on the last, honestly, over the course of history, it's not just the last 40, 30, 40 years. It's it's longer than that. You know, in times, like the take the Roman Empire, for example. I mean, how many times in times of crisis did they reach for tyranny? A lot. I mean, why do you think they threw off the Roman Republic and, and created the empire? You think they, they did that because they, you know, it was the better thing to do? It wasn't the better thing to do. John Adams actually talks about this, by the way, in some of his writings. I'll probably bring that into the podcast eventually. He talks a lot about Rome. And actually, we're probably going to talk a lot about that in the next episode. Stay tuned for that. John and his wife have an interesting conversation with each other about this. People do oftentimes reach for tyranny. And I add money in there. Why do I add money? What's what's with the money? Why do, Why would I say people reach for money in dangerous times? People think money can solve everything. They replace virtue and wisdom with money. And they replace wisdom and virtue with tyranny. And they think it's going to work. They think you, you take wisdom and virtue and you replace it with money and tyranny. And it's somehow the, the math is going to work out on that. Well, I mean, it does if the end result you're looking for is tyranny and oppression. If that's what you're looking for, then you just keep on doing that, that, that old strategy, going all the way back to the, the Greeks and before them, going back to Egypt. You just keep looking for money and tyranny, and you will get tyranny and oppression every single time. It's an equation that has been tested over and over and over again by the finest mathematicians of the Roman Empire and elsewhere. It works every time it's tried. Stay away from it, folks. I'm telling you. John Adams is telling you to stay away from it, and we're going we're gonna to make that more clear in the next episode. We're going to tie this together. Because, again, on this is the Thinking Persons Podcast. This is very much the Thinking Persons Podcast, and we're going to learn from John Adams when we read these letters. We're not just going to skip over this stuff and cruise. I leave that to other people. I leave that to the historians in the university. <laughs> they're, they're not going to like me for saying that. Look, there's some good ones. Don't get me wrong. There are some good ones, but they, they tend to dwell on things that really aren't as important as they think they are. And they tend to skip over things that really are important because it doesn't fit with their, oh, I don't know, their, their particular scheme that they got going on. I don't have a scheme here. I'm just reading the letters to you. I mean, if I if, if I if I had a scheme, believe me, the last thing in the world I'd be doing is reading you these letters. Because I, I, the best thing that somebody can do who's trying to run a game on you is not go to the source material and to just, just speak open-ended right off the top of their head. That's what people do when they're trying to run a game on you. And that's not, the, that's not the mission of this podcast. This is a study session between all of us. You are joining with me in a study group. And we're talking about this. I just happen to be curating it. And what do I mean by curating it? I, I just, I, I pull out the material and I, I select the letters and then we then we talk about them here. But this is real, folks. This is real history. That's why, that's why I call it the real history of the uh, the Founding Fathers, because it's it's hard to dispute what they wrote down in their letters. You, you can't. You can't dispute, unless you just disagree with them. You can, you can disagree with them if you want to, but you can't dispute that this is real history. And you might even disagree with my perspective on it. That's perfectly fine. But you can't disagree with John Adams' perspective. Well, I mean, you, you can't dispute that this is John Adams' perspective here about wisdom and virtue and the problematic nature of corruption, like we talked about in the last episode. You know, him and Sam Adams talk about that. And we're going to hear more about that in the next episode and beyond. Get ready for that. Let's continue on. Quote, Remember my tender love to my little Nabby. Tell her she must write me a letter and enclose it in the next you send. I am charmed with your amusement with our little Johnny. Tell him I am glad to hear he is so good a boy as to read to his mama for her entertainment and to keep himself out of the company of rude children. Tell him I hope to hear a good account of his accidents and nomenclature. When I return, kiss my little Charlie and Tommy for me. Tell them I shall be at home by November, but how much sooner I know not. End quote. This is just a this is just a lovely piece of him writing to his wife about his children. And why did I why did I opt to put this into this podcast? I could have skipped over this section. 
I did it because it's important to remember that these guys are family men, especially John Adams. He had, he had a number. He had four kids, and he he quite clearly has an affection for them. He's writing about them. He he's you know Abigail had clearly written him a letter and told him some stories about what was going on with the kids. And you know Johnny's reading that would be John Quincy, future president of the United States, by the way. In case you didn't know, John Quincy Adams was the sixth president of the United States. I believe he was also the the very first president to be photographed. I don't think he was president when he was photographed. I think it was after he left the presidency. But he was the first United States president to be photographed. I think. But I, I I looked that up many years ago, and I think that's still, I think that was accurate. And I remember looking at the picture. I can't imagine anybody else came for like James Madison. I don't think he was ever photographed. But um, he didn't look happy in the picture. Most people didn't back then. Though. You ever look at those old black and white pictures and the people always look, they, have a, they almost look like they all have a scowl on their face. I don't know whether that's just a credit to the times. The times were hard back then or whether that people just didn't look happy in pictures. It just tells you, it just, it's another one of those things that tells you how different the world is today than it was, than it was back then. People didn't know what to do with pictures back then. Am I supposed to smile? Am I supposed to just sit here in some kind of a stoic glance at the camera, which is what John Quincy Adams did? But I, I always, I always marvel at that. You know, John Quincy was actually a president who was photographed. That's pretty amazing because that, that he he lived through the Revolutionary War. There were people who lived through the Re Revolutionary War and remember it, remember it well. They were old enough to remember it, and they were actually photographed. They actually lived to see the the age of the the picture, the photograph. It's amazing. You can tell I'm a history enthusiast because it's little things like that 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 get my that get just my the synapses in my brain firing and get them all excited. It, most people would be so bored by 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 that, but I I, I find it very very interesting. I, I I like this stuff. I really like this stuff. I hope you folks do too. And I like this line where he said he's talking about Johnny. He says, "Quote: Keep himself out of the company of rude children." End quote. How many parents tell their kids that today? <laughs> Stay away from those kids over there. But things, some things just never change, folks. You know, people talking, you know, telling their kids to stay away from the rude children and to, uh, you know, spend their time only with the polite children. That's that's every parent for the last 10,000 years, basically, saying the same thing to their children. Right? Well, most parents. There's all, Obviously, if there's rude children out there, somebody's not saying that to their kids. And here's another thing about this. I mean, putting putting this in perspective for you, he has children in a family very near Boston, I mean, at one point in time, they're in Boston. Some of the time, they're outside Boston on their farm. And martial law is in effect, basically, in the city of Boston. His family is right in the midst of all this. And certainly when, when, when the fighting kicks off in 1775, there's a major battle, a, a huge battle that gets fought a few miles from this guy's front porch. Can you imagine that today? I want you to picture that for a second. I want you to picture your family, your, your wife or your husband and your children, if you have them, or if you don't, just imagine you do. Or imagine your, imagine, uh, you know, your parents or your brothers, your sisters, whatever, in a house a few miles from a serious battle being waged between two militaries. And one of those militaries being just the well-regulated militia. There's no, there's no common military soldiers in that battle. It's just the militia, just the townsfolk and farmers picking up their guns and going off to fight. And your family's in danger. Your family is not too far from the line of fire. Would you still be willing to pack up and go to Congress and do what John Adams did? Keep in mind, there's no cell phones, and it takes it takes a long time to get from Boston to Philadelphia back then. I, I, I wonder if very many people in the United States would have the heart to do it. I know some would. I mean, we still have, you know, people in this country, I mean, soldiers who are willing to pick up and ship off for long periods of time. I mean, their, their families aren't really in danger for the most part. I mean, within reason. There's always danger to be had and everything, but there's not a battle being fought a few miles from your front porch. Would you, st if there were, would you still be willing to pack up and ship out? People did it in 1774, or excuse me, 1775, 1776, and beyond. People did it. 
despite that their families could have been killed. These men sacrificed so much, and it's so easy to forget about it. And we, we live in such comfort today, you know, it's important for us to kind of snap ourselves back into reality and think about this. Think about, you know, Abigail Adams and her, and her kids, you know, sitting on the front porch listening to the cannon fire over the hill, coming from Boston. Think about that. Imagine your wife and kids sitting on their front porch listening to the howitzers go off and the artillery coming down in modern day. Think about that. Some people don't have to think about it. In some parts of the world, I mean, it's, you know, in, in various places, it happens. <laughs> in the United States, though, we, we, we haven't heard, it, that hasn't happened in quite some time, not since the Civil War. In Europe, obviously, it's happened quite a bit more recent. There's still plenty of people alive in Europe today who remember it, who remember the artillery fire coming down, not, not just near them, but on their town. I mean, it's important to remember, that's what these, that's what the founding fathers were going through. They were basically getting, walking into a situation where, where they were going to have gunfire around their families. It's going to happen. Let's continue on. We're going to pick up on a diary entry from August 30th, 1774. And this is going to be where John Adams is in Philadelphia. He's, he's made it to Philadelphia finally. The road trip has concluded. And he's, he's basically walking around the town. Like most people do when they arrive in a new town. They're, he's just kind of exploring. Quote, Walked a little about town. Visited the market, the state house, the carpenter's hall, where the Congress is to sit. Then called at Mr. Miffin's, Mr. Mifflin's, a grand, spacious, and elegant house. Here we had much conversation with Mr. Charles Thompson, end quote. And then continuing on, quote, This Charles Thompson is the Sam Adams of Philadelphia, the life of the cause of liberty, they say, end quote. That's a common phrase even today. Think about that. You know, like if somebody is really good at something, like they're the best of the best, like say somebody is a... Uh, you know, like a master builder, a, ma a master mason at construction or something. Somebody might use a, another character and say, or I mean, use a sports character, I guess it's common reference. I mean, let's say somebody's a, a, you know, a sports character or something like that. They might say that he he is the Michael Jordan of whatever, because Michael Jordan is such a great character in history, right? They would say he's the Michael Jordan of this, that, or the other thing. They're, people still say that kind of thing today. And they were saying it back then about Sam Adams. Sam Adams was known as being so great in the cause of liberty. That they said, quote, this Charles Thompson is the Sam Adams of Philadelphia, end quote. Isn't that interesting? Let's continue on. Quote, the regularity and elegance of this city are very striking. It is situated upon a neck of land about two miles wide between the river Delaware and the river Shuakil. The streets are all exactly straight and parallel to the river. Front Street is near the river, then 2nd second, second Street, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th. The cross streets which intersect these are all equally wide, straight, and parallel to each other, and are named from forest and fruit trees, Pear Street, Apple Street, Walnut Street, Chestnut Street, etc., end quote. So he is fascinated with the, the layout of Philadelphia, and Philadelphia was known as being one of the early gridded cities. What does that mean? In other words, it's laid out according to like what we, so what, it's a modern city. You ever notice how European cities are very... I don't, I don't know how to put it. They're, they're chaotic in some respects. Not, not, not all of them. I mean, some of them have been rebuilt huh, since World War One and World War II. Uh, but, but the older, you know, European cities, they sometimes have these winding roads. Think Rome or something like that. They, they sometimes have these really winding roads that they're, they're almost nonsensical and they're very narrow in some places, wider in others. You got people walking down them in some cases, cars trying to get through. Blah 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 blah. Boston was actually kind of set up along a similar way because it was set up on a, on the British model. The European model, because it was one of those very early colonies. Philadelphia was actually different, though. It was it was laid out according to what we think of as streets and blocks, the, the way cities are built today. 
And he's very fascinated by this. He's talking about it. He's, he's, he's clearly not seen this kind of form before, at least not, not built to this perfection that he describes. He doesn't use that word, but that's basically what he's describing. And he mentions uh, Carpenter's Hall up above, too, by the way. I want to make sure and talk about this, too. The, the preceding section that I had read, quote, We walked a little about town, visited the market, the state house, the Carpenter's Hall, where, co- where the Congress is to sit, end quote. Carpenter's Hall is actually still there uh, if, you, if you actually want to go and visit it. And I looked at it on the map, and there's actually a, uh, a museum of the American Revolution right next to it. And it's right next to I-95. Again, there's that, there's that interstate again. And that's, that's a historic site if ever there was one, Carpenter's Hall. So I, I encourage you, if you're in the area uh, of Philadelphia, uh, go visit Carpenter's Hall. Um, it sounds like it'd be a fantastic place to visit. Great piece of history. Uh, thank goodness the British didn't burn it down during the War of 1812, or the Revolutionary War for that matter, because they probably would have if they, if they would have thought about it, and they, if they would have gotten there. And uh, Carpenter's Hall is actually right in between this Chestnut Street and Walnut Street that Adams is describing, and it really takes you back there. Reading his description of this and then looking at it on the map, looking at it on the map, you can imagine standing there and just thinking to yourself, wow, John Adams walked this path. He looked at these streets. He, he came here from Boston for the first time. And he was walking around down here and uh, just just exploring uh, the, the the neighborhood, just like you can do today. Same neighborhood. I mean, it's changed obviously. There's a there's an interstate right there, but uh, other than that, it it must be an amazing thing to be able to walk around down there. I've I've I forget if I've ever been to Philadelphia. I may have briefly, long time ago. I've been to Pennsylvania a few times, but I certainly never got the chance to walk around down Carpenter's Hall. Uh, but if you could stand on that block and just think to all those greats that walked that street, you know, whether it was Chestnut Street or Walnut Street, there were guys that walked around down there like Washington, Adams, and Benjamin Franklin talking about what was going on in Congress. They were just walking around down there, just, 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 just socializing. Uh, it's just amazing. The history's right there, folks, right there. So yeah, between that and the, the Museum of the American Revolution right next door, Carpenter's Hall, uh, check that out if you ever get the chance. Let's continue on. We're going to read another letter, August 31 of 1774. Apparently it was a Wednesday. Quote, Made a visit to Governor Ward of Rhode Island at his lodgings. There, we were introduced to several gentlemen. Mr. Dickinson, the farmer of Pennsylvania, came to Mr. Ward's lodging to see us in his coach, and four beautiful horses. He was introduced to us and very politely said he was exceedingly glad to have the pleasure of seeing these gentlemen, made some inquiry after the health of his brother and sister, who are now in Boston, gave us some account of his late ill health and his present gout. This was the first time of his getting out. Mr. Dickinson had been subject to hectic complaints. He is a shadow, tall but slender, as a reed, pale as ashes. One would think the first sight that he would not live a month. Yet upon a more attentive inspection, he looks as if the springs of life were strong enough to last many years. We dined with Mr. Lynch and his lady and daughter at their lodgings, Mrs. McKenzie's, and a very agreeable dinner and afternoon we had, notwithstanding the violent heat. We were all vastly pleased with Mr. Lynch. He is a solid, firm, judicious man. He told us that Colonel Washington made the most eloquent speech at the Virginia Convention that was ever made. Says he, quote, I will raise 1,000 men, subsist them at my own expense, and march myself at their head for the relief of Boston, end quote, and, end quote. I always get confused how to handle that sometimes, you know, how to, how to handle a quote within a quote. But anyway, if you hear me, if you hear me double, do that double end quote at the end of something, that's, that's what that is. 
Uh, so you got to keep track of the quotes as I go along, otherwise you might lose track of them. Anyway, is that the third or fourth quote? Anyway. But yeah, I find that that's a very interesting section. And I, I wonder if this uh, Mr. Dickinson is the John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, fellow delegate to the Continental Congress, and, and later apparently served in the Revolutionary War as a soldier or an officer of some note. But this, this last line from Colonel Washington is interesting in his speech at the Virginia Convention, quote, I will raise 1,000 men, subsist them at my own expense, and march myself at their head to the relief of Boston, end quote. Now, what is that again? We've talked about this before. He's going to raise 1,000 men and subsist them at his own expense and march them for the relief of Boston. Now, how are you going to relieve Boston? How are you going to do that? Sound, well, you're probably going to have to take soldiers, right? Men armed? Okay. Where are you going to get the soldiers? Oh, you're going to pull them from the population, the common man. This is yet another appearance of the well-regulated militia. Another appearance of the well-regulated militia, ladies and gentlemen. And we know from our prior episodes on George Washington, George Washington was apparently a big fan of the well-regulated militia. It just keeps showing up. You ever notice that? Like, all throughout these letters, it periodically just kind of shows up. And this isn't the last time this is going to show up. It's going to show up in the next episode, too, I think. And it's going to show up a multitude of times hereafter. So, if you again, if you ever get confused about what the Second Amendment is really all about, just listen to General Washington again for, like, the at least the second time since we've been doing this. And we haven't even done that many episodes yet, really. Quote, I will raise 1,000 men, subsist them at my own expense, and march myself at their head for the relief of Boston, end quote. That's the well-regulated militia, ladies and gentlemen. An ordinary citizen, Colonel Washington, I mean, he was a colonel, I guess, but I mean, honestly, most days, this guy was a farmer. An ordinary citizen marching 1,000 ordinary citizens to the relief of Boston. Simple as that, folks. I mean, you really can't deny this stuff. I mean, people people try. People try to deny this. And why, why am I, why am I, well, again, why do I, Roman, why do you dwell on this so much? Why do you keep nagging us about the well-regulated militia? Because it, it's, it's just one of those things that gets forgotten, you know? I mean, if I feel like something has been grossly forgotten in society today, I'm going to dwell on it until, until I'm, until I feel like I have addressed it sufficiently so as to do, to do uh, the Founding Fathers a service. In other words, to, to basically communicate to you what they would communicate to you if they were here. I try to do that to the best of my ability. And, and again, as always, I am honored that you folks are out there to study this information with me and that you trust me to bring this material to you in an accurate, concise, and effective way. It is my honor to be able to do this uh, with you folks. It really is. And that's all the letters that we had for today. That you know, I think this road trip with John Adams was fantastic. It's relatively brief. We didn't. We, we're not. We're not going to do multiple episodes. Honestly, you'd be, believe me. You'd be bored if I if I did a multi-part episode on this road trip. You'd be terribly bored uh, because some of those letters are just not. They're they're not anything super exciting. It would be hard for me to make that you know informative for for you folks. So I I, I tried to pick the best ones that I could and boil it down to just the brass tacks. So that said, I hope you enjoyed the road trip, and I'm going to give you some summary items in the next section. Let's do that now. All right, well, that about does it. I think we learned quite a bit more about the um, well, what life was like in the colonies back uh, at this particular period of time, right before the Congress was going to meet in 1774. And once again, if you're ever in Philadelphia, uh, swing by Carpenter's Hall. And where the uh, where John Adams, Sam Adams, and all the guys used to hang out, uh, that would be uh, that would be some good fun. So I um, hope you enjoyed this particular episode of the podcast. I know I sure did. I enjoyed reading these letters from John Adams on his road trip. It was good fun. And uh, next episode, which would be episode nineteen, well, you know, next episode, I think it might be a feature length episode. There's a slim possibility that it might not be a feature length episode, in part because I feel like I'm I'm uh, losing my voice. Seriously, 
It's been kind of in and out today as I've been recording the podcast. And so if I continue to have trouble with that, it may cause an issue with delivery of that particular podcast. But um, even if uh, even if I can't do a feature length, I'll do something shorter uh, that's uh, more amenable to my voice going in and out, that kind of thing. So I appreciate your patience with me on that. Uh, as always, uh, leave a review on the podcast if you like. If not, no worries. Uh, also, check out the Patreon podcast if you like. And if not, again, no worries. I just appreciate you listening to this podcast and keeping the Founding Fathers alive uh, in spirit, at the very least, and keeping the writings alive and sharing that with uh, anybody who's interested. Really appreciate that. With all of that said, I definitely look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the podcast. And this is Roman signing out. Thank you. <laughs>